turn, if you would, to chapter 13, Proverbs. We're still marching through this. This has been our midweek teaching. But I've reserved it for right now a couple of Sundays anyways. I've just felt impressed that that's what we need to do. The title, Don't Be Offended, we already found out that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And if that's not dumb or dumber, I don't know what, the statement isn't. It's meaning that we, as human beings prone to sin, with a sin nature, can do dumb things. What do we need to avoid doing dumb things? We need wisdom. We need wisdom that we know comes from God and that we're able to call upon him for. I have a lot of experiences, but those experiences are not necessarily going to allow me to achieve the things that God wants me to do. And sometimes, much obviously to my own peril or perhaps even offending God, I think because of my experiences, I can do anything. I don't need to check in with God, but I'm finding that I can't do everything. And even when I thought I could, if I didn't ask God for wisdom to really just punctuate what it was that I was trying to achieve, then it becomes only another merit badge on my chest. And then I have to deal, or God does, with the issue of pride. So maybe today, the title in in and of itself may be speaking to you, but don't be offended because the word dumb is used. You know, Jesus came to touch the lives of those who were deaf, those who were dumb, those who were diseased. They needed to have a touch from him. Dumb is simply saying this, It's an intellectual challenge to understand everything. There is in that the need to be wise. And so as we march through Proverbs, and it was beginning in chapter 9, it was all about making sure that as you honor the Lord, it has a moral ground to it. You know that what he's telling you to do is anchored in what is right as opposed to what is wrong, what is good as opposed to what is evil, that the conscience of man has been given to them by God, that they might render a decision that will not lead to a consequence, but ultimately to a blessing. Too many people accept the consequence, not realizing that God's intention All along, even in what we would say these proverbial quips, is to let us know that he's serious about a God being our God who desires to bless us exceedingly, abundantly, beyond anything that we could ever hope, ever imagine. And so we open up in this chapter right now, beginning at verse 9, which is just about the area where we left off. We're going to try to finish it. This morning, the light of the righteous rejoices, 
but the lamp of the wicked will be put out. It's a contrast. You have light. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the surface of the waters. That's basically verse 1, moving into 2. And there's something that's being said there, that the radiance of God had been quenched in something that was chaotic, cataclysmic. Verse 1 and 2 has a theology to it, a time gap. I am inclined to believe it. It explains many things about what seems to be a regenerative work by the Spirit brooding over the surface of the waters, a cataclysmic event that had happened, and God redoing it. Because why? Because nothing can thwart what he has begun as a good work. One of the reasons that this comes to light is to say that there's a distinguishing between a light that God gives and does so by his spirit, does so by his word, is the mechanics of a lamp. Very often the lamp is a fashioned piece of equipment. And it may be as simple as a wick that is immersed in wax and dipped and dipped and dipped and dipped until it forms a base for it to have that wick trimmed and lit and to provide, if you would, a lamp experience. The light is ultimately the illumination from what the mechanics is, which is the lamping of light. When God, though, brings his light, the only source that can be explained is it's God himself. And therefore, God wants us to know that both in distinguishing the mechanics of light, what men do, and they do it in order to see, there's one that is a greater priority. It's the light. Jesus is the light of the world. God spoke the world and his first voicing to the world that was in darkness was let there be light. And so when, and some of you may be, if not, we have been, when you're going through a dark time, it's not looking for the mechanical thing, the device that provides some type of lamping for you, just some type of incandescent glow. It's the light. If you're looking for the lamp, when God says, look to the light, then you need to understand that's a spiritual mandate. You're going to be in dark until you have the Lord speak light into the circumstance. Well, how long did it take? We don't know between verse 1 and 2. That's where science permits a foot step into it, but not necessarily a confirming one, because God doesn't need science to prove himself. Faith has done that. And there are many analytical things that we could be perhaps even saying in our life. Well, this is how I need to figure it out. 
You know, the song, we don't say, this little lamp of mine, I'm going to let it shine. We say, this is a light of mine. Because when the residency of the Holy Spirit takes up his home in our heart, then he does this remarkable work in which not only do we have enlightenment, but we are a light for others to see Jesus in better than they have previously. At times you may say, I'm so dim. That's a spiritual condition. That's a spiritual condition that can be met by God as you say, Lord, give me wisdom in my circumstance in which I just feel that I'm not shining as I once did. But I will also remind you that the scriptures are at times documenting very clearly that there are men and women who in dark times wondered, what's happened to God? What's going to happen to me? I know this, though. They never let go of the light, even though for a season they were permitted to be in dark. And that's one of the things that we must say, not going to let go of the light. I know there are things that can help me. I know there's a means by which I can operate in a lamp that could be constructed for me. But what I want is light. I'll take this shadow zone in my faith in order to come into the light that will shine. I'll see the footsteps of his faithfulness guiding and directing me, but I'll stick in this shadow zone until by his illumination, I have clarity. That's the distinction that's being given here. The light of the righteous rejoices, meaning that because his light is both within you and even in the times of what may be your darkness, there is a reason to rejoice. The reason being is that God is with you, even at the worst of times. There's a lot of bad things happening to wonderfully beautiful people that were in a place that they probably never imagined themselves to be. Israel was our topic just at the beginning of the month. Terrible things happened to wonderful people by those who did not have the light of God in them, though the light of God certainly has been shown to them. And as a result, even to the last song, idol worship led to corruption of the soul. And terrible things were permitted for them to do because it was motivated by darkness. There's a difference between being in darkness and being motivated by darkness. As we advance on, the poor does not hear the rebuke. I'm echoing back where we once were before. And that is, if there is a dumbness that can be a part of our intellect, then can there be in this case, a deafness as well, perhaps. Because sometimes you just get tired of hearing it. Do you know some people get tired of hearing the Word of God? Some people get tired of me sharing the Word of God. That's a problem. It's not my problem. 
I could maybe do better in the sharing of the word of God, but not to a person saying, I've had enough of the word of God. It's important to stay in the word as it's important to stay in the light, as it's important not to fear that God's seemingly absence from you is anything less than him building your confidence up in a time of critical necessity. You've got to be as strong as the Lord is able to enable you. And so this in verse 10 says, alluding to and specifically naming pride with it, but pride comes nothing, or by pride comes nothing but strife. So one of the things that we can see is that when there's strife in the mechanics of trying to see God better, even trying by your own reason to get out of a situation, it seems to be that pride is the reason. It can be, in fact, the reason for the hard season. It can be. All you have to do is ask yourself, what do you do? How do you handle it when you've been insulted? When somebody has said something to you in which you have been personally insulted, or maybe you have been assaulted, what is your heart in perhaps revisiting that? Most people would say, well, it's still easily offended. That hurt. I would never have imagined that could have ever happened to me. Have you ever had those moments? I have. You know, I have had them. I've had them in ministry in which you go, why would that happen? I mean, there's a lot of things that I've done for God. Why do I have to endure being a spectacle, being humiliated by people of God? So my thoughts are as if it was good enough for Jesus, then he doesn't mind sharing what makes me more sensitive to what he was willing to endure for my sake. Because I'm thinking there were times in my life and still maybe in which I miss the bar that he set. And I haven't been as faithful as he has been. But the point being made in this verse and the warning is pride. And that's basically when our personalities are exalted above the imposition of being insulted. When I exalt myself above the inconvenience or humiliation of being insulted, I potentially have a problem. And I know that in the moment that I don't address it to God to give me light with my dark heart, I'm going to begin seeing how I can get around them, get even with them, or simply get along without them. That's my risk. Pride comes nothing but strife. That's a sign. One of the things that I have to ask myself, okay, I'm in a season of strife. Why am I to blame? Chances are, if it deals with pride, yes, you are. Yes, I am. Well, no, it's them. Well, just because I blame them, that indicates that I have some evidence of pride in me. If I can blame someone 
it does indicate I have something in the area of pride still within me. If Jesus taught that you turn the other cheek, it meant you've already given the other one to him, her. You've already allowed yourself to be smote. And it means rather than put your gloves on, you are willing to say, gloves off, have at it again. There you go. Nobody likes that. Jesus is saying, though, that in so doing, you give them no reason except to understand they are in need of both a savior and an opportunity. Do you realize that sometimes what is the striking expression of somebody towards us is actually because they have not understood the forgiveness of God. They have missed mercy somehow. They are without the deep reservoir of grace that God has poured out. And sometimes that cruelty that you've permitted yourself to endure is ultimately how God then comes in and touches them with kindness. For it is indeed God's kindness that leads men to repentance. Just when you think that your plan B is going to be the thing that changes the circumstance, God says, how about doing this? They need one more dose of my kindness and they will be broken. The question is, what type of breaking do you want? <laughs> yeah, broken, broken in five different pieces. Rolled over by a big, giant, ugly Ford. Fords aren't ugly. Forgive me, Lord. <laughs> but see, that's the thing is that it's not that type of breaking. It's sweetly broken. It's being crushed, pulverized by the manner in which only the Holy Spirit can do it without damage. It's tears. It's the mucous membranes just offering everything up that's congealed and causing there to be just back up. It's the flesh that all of a sudden just gives up, writhing. Some of this sounds dramatic, but it is true that when there's a sincere breaking, the floodgates are open. You're not holding back. And here's what it was the result of, that in recognizing your vulnerability to pride and doing things that perhaps were contrary in that pride, you all of a sudden had light shown to you. And the Lord said, do you see this that I've done for you in an act of mercy and kindness to you? That's what I want for them, the offender. I want you to do that. One of the things that I have to wrestle with pretty much every week is my disposition to simply the people of God. I believe that I do a very good job because I honestly believe with sincerity I love people. But I had a challenge on Friday when
two guys came in for breakfast. I don't think they're here. But when the breakfast was over, I pray an invocation for the teaching, and Dale was teaching just awesomely. But during the time just before that, there was just behavioral problems that I saw in one of them. And so I knew that either I was going to risk tolerating it and messing up the study that had been well prepared and the men that were there to listen to it. And I was asking, Lord, do I intervene? Do I move in a direction to protect the teaching in order to correct the offender? And then if so, how do I do it in a manner where it's not turning into a circus? So inside my heart, that's what I'm doing. And so I'm listening. And so one of my good friends, Micah, I could see him turn his head and he was giving this guy directions. Shh, we can't hear. You're talking, you're disrupting. I could see Micah do that. And I'm in a different side. I'm, I'm down where the donuts are at, to be quite honest. I won't tell you why I was at the donut station, but that's where I was. But I finally said, Lord, I'm going. I'm going to take footsteps in the direction in which that man is distracting. Help me to do it so that there's nothing else but your peace prevailing. And so I went over to him, leaned into him, and said, hey, you can't talk during a teaching, so I need to have you come with me. I need you to excuse yourself. Would you do that? And so, boop, he pops up clumsily, but he did pop up. I moved ahead of him, and he followed me. Yes, to the donut station, but I can explain that. I wasn't trying to get my last donut. It's how I had to get around everybody else. But he stopped there to get a donut. And I thought, in one way, that's cool. And I thought, the Lord's banqueting table is still for this guy? Yes, of course. <laughs> so then he followed me out here, here, and there, because that's where we were aiming. And I said, what is your name? My name's Matthew. Matthew, that's a great name. And God has great things for you, but one of the things you need to know is that God wants you to hear and not to disrupt. You're welcome to come back and dine with us again. But today, I had to ask you to leave. And I'm going to ask you to follow me outside so that I can get back there. But I'm going to pray for you before I let you go. And so I prayed for him. And this is what he said. But people need to hear. I said, hear what, Matthew? This is what they need to hear. They need to hear Jesus. And they need to hear principles of sound doctrine. On that, you interrupted God. So what I had to do was come and interrupt you. But isn't he good? You got a good breakfast, didn't you? Huh? And you got a couple of donuts. Huh? Can I get you anything else? Cup of coffee? Nope. I said, well, I hope we see you again. But you've got to come in on my terms, pastoring. You've got to come in on my terms. And he left, he did a couple of gymnastics. He was, he was kind of like um, Tigger on steroids. That's what he was like. But his name's Matthew. Lord, we pray for Matthew right now. 
as he was ministered to correctively, there was for him, we know, the challenge of having a clear mind. It wasn't. But he did sit down and he ended up bringing someone who actually was offended in his behavior. He brought somebody that turned out to be closer in the spirit to us than what he was able to show. But Lord, we do pray for Matthew being in right mind, healed from the influence of drugs and of pride, arrogance that we saw. But thank you that you peacefully adjourned him. You allowed me to accomplish what you put on my heart to do. And kindness was definitely seen by him from you. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name. Let me pursue just a couple more verses for you. I never necessarily make any promises I can get to the end of wherever I'm at. But as you look at that verse... And you see that when strife is there, it is the sign that pride exists somehow. So who does it exist in? If you can honestly say, not me, <laughs> you've just indicted yourself. Because somehow, some way, both people in a situation of strife have participated contrary to God's will. I have found that when I keep my mouth shut, which is so difficult, and my ears open, which is so necessary, God comes in and makes the difference of either my ignorance, which I'm asking he grant me wisdom and my intelligence, and that I don't err by presuming that there's anything other than peace that I have to broker for, even if it is indeed Confessing, I am sorry for the offense that I have been. What I said, what I did, what I'm still doing, that's the hardest thing. But usually, when we're in a situation in which the blame is solely being levied to somebody else, it means that we haven't fully accepted responsibility for ourselves. Jesus was actually the only one that the scriptures reveal that could be involved in offending someone by actually doing nothing, to have intentionally, willfully offended them for the purpose of demeaning. Oh, I know you may say, but the Pharisees, that was a corrective voicing from God to the institution that was intended to represent him. It was a whole different idea. That was corrective, like what I had to do on Friday. That was for the purpose that there wouldn't be confusion, errors on our part for perhaps teaching somebody that it's your rally. What's bothering you? Of course interrupt us. Yeah, what DLC and we've all heard it a hundred times. You go ahead and say what's on your mind. Let's turn this into a peace conference. Let's get down to the nitty gritty, the politics of your distressed soul. You're interrupting the word of God. So come with me. And because we prayed, I did, he did. But on this idea right now, if pride comes nothing but strife, that's one of the things we have to do. If there's strife, I need to be able to say, Lord, grant light for me to see that where I have offended and provoked perhaps reaction. Lord, subdue it. 
Let me be one that is the first to confess I'm not perfect. I wouldn't do that again if I could do it over. But the only do-over that I can do right now is to say, in this moment, I'm changing for your sake. I'm changing to reflect better God's kindness in which I have benefited. I want to be that who benefits you. What if you're the last voice of kindness to somebody and it's precisely what it is they need in that moment where you were hung up as to the blame? What if God says, my cup of kindness is going to be poured out through you right now, wrestling with whether that person is worthy? But when you pour it out, it's going to change their bitterness. That cup of kindness will be sweet to their soul. Their bitterness and ultimately its effect on you will no longer be an infection in you. You'll be free. But the lamp of the wicked will be put out. See, it's the mechanics. Whatever their mechanics are, everybody's got it. It's just going to be put out. You can't put the light of God out. No one can. He doesn't diminish in his intensity, in the precision of his light. But the mechanics of a lamp, yeah, bulb can be broken, wick can be snipped, light snuffed out. Ultimately, it says that those who are wicked will have their lamps, their mechanics put out. Keep an eye on Israel. What has been discovered is that God may be indeed divinely working behind the scenes, for there have been what has been determined about 500 missiles that are being launched by Hamas to Israel, and they're blowing up in their faces. They're turning around and actually causing destruction of their own military. You can say, oh, what's that got to do with light? Because God's saying he doesn't want the light of a rocket tail to be presumed that those guys are going to get away with anything. God has the battle, and he wins the battle. And I wanted to say that because we are in a war as well with the things that are contrary to the Spirit. And those weapons, by the sinister minions of darkness, it will explode back on them if you allow God to direct both your steps and to bring to mind the scriptures that defend you. And so this is, again, in verse 10, this idea that strife is a sign that tells you something can be done if you're willing to say, I'm going to contribute healing, I'm going to contribute restoration, I'm going to contribute my cup of kindness, which is the Lord, to pour out into that person's life. Because if I can make a difference in perhaps the misery of my strife, why would I delay? If the Lord is with me, then how could that person be against me? Wealth gained by dishonesty will be diminished, but he who gathers by labor will increase. And this is simply saying, thank you for being works of God. Meaning 
that you came here as a work of God, you are willing to work by the Spirit for God, and when you leave here today, you will see the work of God in your life. Little by little, faith being increased, the benefits of God in your obedience evident to you. And you'll never be able to deny that your relationship with God was as sensitive and, and powerful as the same visitation that he made upon Abraham, upon Isaac, upon Jacob, upon Joseph, upon David, Solomon too. You will never be able to say, I never really knew God, because God will say, I was always with you. And because you had determined that nothing would take my place, then I've placed you as a work of my hands exactly where you are and to satisfy exactly what I want. But stay where I've planted you. Hang on to those that I've surrounded you with. Be my servant and be my cup of kindness.